Welcome to the Western Vowel podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, The Tyranny of the Past, To Be Free of Personal History. The talk was given by Mary Angelon Young on May 11, 2019, in Prescott, Arizona. Angelon is author of, As It Is, A Year on the Road with a Tantric Teacher, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, Under the Punai Tree, The Baal Tradition, Krishna's Heretic Lovers, a novel, Enlightened Duality, co-authored with Lee Lozowick, and other books. Originally trained in Jungian psychotherapy, she is a workshop leader and the senior editor of Sahaja Magazine, a publication on Western vowel practice. Angelon Young. Thanks, everybody, for being here tonight. Really thrilled and happy to see you and to have this opportunity to share a little bit of time with you and consider uh, consider these very important themes that we bring up on the Saturday night talk series, themes that have to do with how we're going to even begin to realize our innate potential, our God-given potential. So tonight my theme is to be free from the tyranny of the past. And the subtitle, I, I think would be an excellent subtitle, is um, Something Radically New Right Now. Before I delve into considerations about past, present, future, and here we are in space-time, <laughs> where we have to deal with time, um, I'd like to say a couple of things um, about the importance of making distinctions and discerning for ourselves because uh, this 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 uh, uh, spiritual practice of discernment uh, discrimination meaning being able to tell what that is and what that is this is that and that is this and knowing knowing that there are differences in this realm of duality where we are so these practices of discerning the subtle layers of reality subtle what's underlying the obvious making subtle discernments making discriminations, knowing that there are differences and knowing what they are and what how, how those could be useful to us, and uh, making distinctions, that we're going to be applying those three things to the subject of time and specifically the past tonight. So in a lot of spiritual practice, we go for the non-dual, right? We go for unity, we go for oneness, this is great. We do this in meditation, even though in meditation we're dealing with the mind, and so we're dealing with all kinds of dualistic thought and all of our concerns and our worries and our hassles and and, and so on and so forth, the things that we're fixated on, the past, for example. Um, but essentially, in meditation, we have the opportunity to have a little taste now and then, and if we're lucky, more often, mm-hmm. of uh, how suddenly we're meditating, our minds are going like they always go, but then the next thing we know, some time has passed and there was nothing happening but this wonderful, vast kind of radiant space. 
just this beautiful emptiness. But that emptiness is not like dark and scary. It's radiant and beautiful and full of potential. So that's a, more of a non-dual experience. Meditation aims at that, and a lot of other spiritual practices do. But these practices that are related to making distinctions and discerning subtle levels of reality, these relate to our everyday lives in duality. Here we are in duality. We are living on a continuum of past, present, and future. And so how are we going to bring wisdom and insight to that? Well, that's what we'll explore some tonight. You know, if, how many of you have been to India? Uh-huh, good. So if you've spent any time in India at the Smashan, which is where a lot of yogis, a lot of really hardcore yogis gather and uh, you get to, to be in their presence and, and um, observe some of them. These, most of them are tantric practitioners. And um, that means that they're working in, in, in the realm of duality toward non-duality. It's like a very brief sort of, there's lots that can be said about tantric practice. But um, they, are, they are interested in, many of them, their aim or their purpose is about personal power. It's about gathering personal power. And um, that's fine. That's good. But I want to just share with you my context for why do we engage spiritual practice, any kind of spiritual practice, tantric practice, um, non-dual practice, whatever it is, mantra practice, visualization practice, just simple self-observation practice. Why do we engage that? Yes, we want to um, we want to uh, seed and empower and invoke the potential that's in us, which I will come back to. But ultimately, it's not just about my personal power and my personal trip. It's about what I will refer to for tonight as deity. So it's important that we that we reflect on this for ourselves. What is my aim? Why am I doing this? Why am I why am I even interested in self-development. So I'm suggesting and I'm, 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 um, and I'm speaking from the context of practice that's related to deity. So however that is for you, that can be the supreme reality, it can be a very non-dual understanding of deity, it can be a lot more personal, it can be Jesus if you're from the Christian tradition, it can be Krishna, it can be Shiva, it can be um, some saint or teacher that has been a, a symbol or a representative of the divine for you in your life. So when I say deity, if you will agree to just uh, understand that and put your version of that on what I'm saying, that would be really great. The great thing about uh, focusing on deity in our spiritual practice is that when we when our aim, our purpose is, is that we're doing it for deity, in the end, in the long run, that means we're doing it for self also, because there is no difference. Self, the innate, the innate um, tacit self of the created being and the deity are the same. It's exactly the same. So in the end, you get yourself, but your focus is on the deity. It's very beautiful, and it protects you from a lot of ego pitfalls that come along on the path. Make sense? Mm -hmm. 
So something radically new. Reflections on change. So why, why do we want something radically new? I've had a few people ask me this question. We don't want to just barge, barge uh, along in our lives trying to change things because we're bored, we, um, uh, we're curious, or we're restless, or we just want to entertain ourselves. We just like to entertain our ego by, by uh, stirring things up or, or you know, causing trouble. Some of us are just born troublemakers, and we love to make trouble. And there's a good side to that because it does shake things up and keep things alive. But we don't want to barge it along into trying to make change happen or trying to make something radically new happen just because we're bored or we want to be entertained. So let's keep that in mind. Let's just kind of consider somewhere in the background, why would we want to do this? And I think some of those answers will come as, as, I, as I continue tonight. So first, we want to examine you know, the underlying principles that you're all very familiar with. But I'm going to go over this territory just to speak it into the space for us. We have to, on the spiritual path, allow ourselves to become aware that we are super attached and identified with everything from the past. We are living from the past on a day-to-day basis, whether it was five minutes ago or or, uh, 45 years ago. So all of the impressions, the education, our memory, Everything that we've taken in in our throughout throughout our life from from birth on, that's all part of who we are. It's beautiful. It's good, and if we're completely focused back there, the present moment is defined by that past, and the future is magnetically created also out of the past. And on top of all of that, we have this, most of us, I mean, really most of us, like probably 99.9% of us, we're rooted in the familiar, and we don't want to get outside of our comfort zone. You know, we, we somewhere, we know deep down inside ourselves, somewhere in our blood and our the marrow of our bones and the beat of our heart, we know that our time here, our span of life is actually going to be very short and we will pass on. And we will have to say goodbye to everything and everybody that we love and cherish, including our cherished identities, which is maybe even the easiest part is saying goodbye to everybody else is maybe the hardest part. But however, it's not easy either way. But for some reason, it's been designed this way by life, that this is, there's something very valuable for us in working with this impermanence and with this unknown that death will actually be. So we can understand pretty easily that, um, that we have good reason to be focused on the path or to be fixated on the past or to keep uh, cleaving to or grasping at the past because the future is an unknown. At least if we're continuing to, the past is just this recurring pattern that we, do, we, we, we fulfill over and over and over again. At least we know what it is. And even if it's painful, I mean, we all know people that we love dearly who have stayed in abusive relationships, or maybe most of us do. I have. Um, I, have known, I have known this, and I've had my own version of it. We stay in situations or relationships that are not healthy for us. Maybe they're not, we wouldn't call them abusive, but they're not healthy for us or for the other person. But we stay because it's familiar. At least we know what it is. 
So how do we get out of that? How do we get out of that? Our resistance to change, you know, really, it's at the core of our human nature. It's something we deal with throughout our lives. And we think it might be different for us once we get onto the spiritual path, but it's not. It's the same because spiritual identifications are just as deadly, let's say, or they're just as serious. They glom on. We, we hold on to our, um, to our glories, to our, our accomplishments, to our moments of insight, our breakthroughs. We hold on to that uh, for dear life. But even that, even the wonderful things that happen in our lives, that can be holding us back from something radically new that may be trying to emerge through us, that life wants to manifest through us. So as soon, in fact, as soon as we set foot on the path, we are kind of signing on for working with this principle of impermanence and the unknown. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's probably in big, bold letters up at the top of the contract, you know, when we enter the, enter the spiritual path. But something our unconscious mind maybe thinks it's like in, in tiny little words down at the bottom and we didn't even really see it or we didn't register it. It didn't land with us that we are. In, this is what we've signed on for is working with the unknown and with impermanence and that this could actually be a wonderful thing. I um I don't know how many of you were at my last talk, but I shared this uh, quote from um from a um, teacher that I really liked. Um, he's a man who's been very deeply involved in the um, death and dying movement and hospice movement in grief work. And there's a beautiful, beautiful video about his work. It's called Grief Walker. I'm sure I think you can get it online, but. His name is Stephen Jenkinson. And the last time I heard him speak, he said this sentence that has stayed with me. So I'd like to share it with you. Those of you who have heard it before, we can hear it. We can always hear these things again. And what he said was, if you do not know yourself as an insoluble nugget of mystery, then you will never have humility. So... Well, so what? You know, maybe we don't even want humility. You know, and some of us, we hear the word humility and that sounds like mm, way too vulnerable. That sounds like maybe we don't know what we're doing or that, that you know, like the early bird gets the worm. You've got to get out there and, and, and like be, you know, powerful and achieve and make things happen. But actually, if we're going to consider the possibility of our own unfolding, then this principle of humility is something that that I feel for myself. And my, my teacher, Lee Lozowick, said many, many times, humility is the most precious, the most precious sublime quality you can cultivate. And he said it is so, so genuinely rare, people who actually really have humility. It's a rare, rare thing. So we want to cultivate it. It's right up there with compassion. Because if we've got humility... <coughs> then a lot of things become possible for us. And humility is not about being insecure or unworthy or kind of quiet and shy and you can't make anything happen or get anything done. Humility is something beautiful and dignified and noble. And it's fluid. And it's open and receptive and, ha- receptive and it has lots of space in it. 
So you have space to be and you have space to allow others to be. And when we have space, then anything is possible because all the other sublime qualities can arise in that space. That All the other sublime qualities that we're seeking to cultivate in ourselves on the spiritual path. So I like to put a plug in for humility because it's good for me. I need to be reminded every day that humility is a rare and precious sublime quality and we have to cultivate it. Because our culture is not cultivating it in us. You know, you're not hearing on the media, you all should be humble. You know, that I, I mean, maybe if you get some really great TED talk and, you know, you know what you're looking for, you can find something like that. But in general, in general, we all know that, that, our, that our hyperdrive superculture that we live in in modern times is not preaching and teaching humility to us. So we have to find it for ourselves. We have to want it and find it for ourselves and realize its value. So um, I want to invite you at this point, um, if you have pencil and paper with you, feel free to write this down. But if not, just do it inside yourself. I'd like you to think about five aspects of yourself of your self-identity that are very important to you, that you think of as who I am. Might be mother or father, you're a parent. Uh, might be business, business person, businessman, businesswoman, artist, healer, musician, spiritual student, yogi, there's a good one. I'm a yogi. I've put in 35 years on my yoga. I'm proud of it. Yeah. All those things. So five of those. And just just have those, let those kind of percolate or stew. Let them kind of cook inside you as we continue our considerations tonight. Dancer, singer lover of dogs, rodeo rider, whatever it is. So, yes, I'd like to invite you to sit with those for the next period of time, which is what we're going to talk about next. So, past, present, future, time. Here we are in the space-time continuum. And it really does seem like there's past, present, and future. We know from quantum physics and from great saints and, and, and you know, those who have realized, um, who are self-realized or God-realized that we're hearing a lot about, well, all you have is now. There's really only now. And that is true. We know that's true. And that's not the subject of our talk tonight. Tonight, we're talking about how can we get some skills and some wisdom and some insight about how to deal with this phenomena called space-time, past, present, and future. How are we going to be, be able to even consider getting into the now so that what's going to happen next could possibly be something radical, radically new? If that's what deity would like to have appear next. So time is not the enemy. The only problem with the past the only problem with the past, because we have a lot of great accumulated wisdom from the past. We do. And that's important. We need to make some distinctions about that. 
and be able to acknowledge that and make use of it in the present now. The past is not a bad thing. It is not our enemy. What the problem is, how the problem arises, is that we become crystallized and fixated in the past, and we believe that those accumulated identities that we have, that we've become very masterful with, we believe that that's who we are. Yes, we're that. We're a whole lot of other things, too. We're We're like our being is like a kaleidoscope. You know what, have you ever played with a kaleidoscope? There are some very beautiful ones around that you can get. They're amazing. So it's a mandala. You know, you're looking through it and you're looking at this mandala of light and color and form. It's very, very beautiful. And every turn of the wheel, click, it changes and another beautiful mandala comes into view. Our being is like that. And we might consider that that what deity wants more than anything else is to see all of our colors, to see all of our beauty and form. Not the personality, not the persona, although that's part of how we express and that's all good and to be accepted and 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 you be be uh, understand its usefulness and its place, but that we can open up and free ourselves so that these different views can come into play in existence. This is pleasing to deity. This is pleasing to God, we could say. I love this quote from William Blake. Eternity is in love with the creations of time. And it kind of says it. Eternity is in love with the creations of time. So despite the fact that we know and we understand that the only problem with with the past is our fixation and our crystallization and our grasping and clinging to it out of fear of the unknown and because it's familiar and safe even it even if it's even if it's a kind of dead or stuck or uninteresting or it's become stale even though we know that we hold on we 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 live to a great degree based on nostalgia and sentimental longing for all of that past. So the more we give voice to and thought to either idealize our past or to demonize our past, the more crystallized and concretized we become in it. I I too find it really fun. I love to ruminate about the past. It's really enjoyable. It's a lot of fun, especially if you have many old friends and you've got lots of experiences with them. And remember when we did that? And remember when we went to that place and we did that and we climbed that mountain and, you know, either literally or metaphorically speaking, we climbed that mountain together. Remember that? That was awesome, wasn't it? There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if that's if that's taking up so much of our thought and our voice that there's no room, there's no space for something new to show up, then we're kind of stuck. We get stuck there. Time without change is inertia. You know, in the, um, in the Hindu tradition, there's a philosophical system called Samkhya. Are any of you familiar with that? Samkhya. So there are these three forces, and this is not only in Samkhya, this is across the board in so many 
spiritual traditions like the ancient Celts. They called it the uh, Trishkol, the three forces. Gurdjieff would say um, the, the uh, what would Gurdjieff say, Carl? The denying force, the affirming, affirming force, and the, what's the third one? Reconciling. Reconciling force. So it's called the three gunas in the Hindu tradition. And those are creation, preservation, and destruction. So this, these are the three forces that move everything in creation. Everything is, is moving according to these. Sometimes creation is happening. Sometimes preservation is happening. And it may be that we need to be in preservation for a really long time in a cycle in our lives. Some part of ourselves or some aspect of our life experience, we've got to do that for a very long time. But eventually... All things pass. Things do come to an end. And destruction, in whatever way that happens, maybe it just ends peacefully, but it still ends. It's still, that form is destroyed. A space is created, and then something new can come. So this is time. This is like, this is, this is happening in time. That doesn't happen in non-duality. Creation, preservation, and destruction doesn't happen in non-duality. It happens in time. So it's not our enemy at all. It's a gift that's been given to us by deity, by the divine. Time is a gift. Time and timelessness are gifts that we've been given. In the Hindu tradition, the, the three gods, the, there are three gods that represent symbolically these three forces. Brahma, who's the creator, Vishnu, who's the preserver, and Shiva, who is the destroyer. And Shiva and his consort, Parvati, and pretty much everybody in the Shiva family, Kali and so on, you see them with this little drum, one of their hands in their iconography, their symbolic uh, representation of their different qualities. They always have a little drum in their hand. It's called a Damaru. And uh, there's probably even one around here somewhere in all of these artifacts. It has a, it has a skin. It's two-sided. It's very small. It's two-sided, and it has a little... It has, it, it, you, you play it like this, and it beats back and forth, and it beats out times. And that's why Shiva has it, because he's a master of time. And the Damaru represents his pulse, his breath, his heartbeat. And it's the mystery, you know, it's the mystery of time and timelessness, this wonderful mystery that we're in. So time is not the enemy, and it's very important for us to... Um, to really understand that or, or to embrace it or to contemplate it even. You know, forget about understand and embrace. Just contemplate. So just think about it. It's a gift that's been given to us. Incarnation, this gift. I once went to, um, I've been there actually a couple of times now. There's a, a place uh, just northeast of here. I think it's called Beaver Creek and there's a campground down in there. There's a beautiful creek with red rocks. Absolutely gorgeous. You walk back up in um, in there. There's, I think, a couple of signs that show you where to go. And uh, down, down a long ways over the field, and there is usually a, um, a, it's either state forest or national forest. There's some kind of a ranger or a guide there who will take you down to see this big rock. It's a huge rock down in, in nestled uh, down under a bunch of trees down this field. And this rock is covered 
with petroglyphs. And they explain to you that what the petroglyphs mean, that for the Anasazi people who lived in this area a long time ago, that um, the sun hit this rock at a very particular time every year. And he, they show you what the glyphs that mean now it's time to plant. Now it's, now, it's time, now it's time to plow. Now it's time to sow. Now it's time to reap. So they had this understanding of this beautiful you know, natural order of time and the importance of time and the movement of the seasons. And I, I find these kinds of things very inspiring because even though I don't understand everything about their symbolism and their way of life, I also resonate with it and I can feel the sacredness of it. I can feel that they had this wisdom body. And that they were doing everything based on that. The movements of the sun and the moon that they had and the stars and the planets and and all of this. So time is very connected to this cosmic order that we have and to to uh, how things move in within the cosmic order. And I'm gonna come back to that because I want to read you a little something. Maybe I'll read it to you now. Let's do that. Have any of you ever read this little book, the Bhagavad Gita, some version of it? Yes. It's called the, the translation. It's the Song of the Lord. This is one part of the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, um, in which is the, the story of Krishna, who is an avatar, an incarnation of Vishnu, this preserver god. We were talking about the creation, preservation, and destruction. Vishnu is the one that preserves things. So the entire Mahabharata, which is a vast epic of amazing proportions, it's all about Krishna. And this is Krishna's song. This is just one little part of it. And in this song, Krishna gives many, many different teachings. One of his most beautiful teachings near the beginning is he talks, he's talking to Arjuna, who is a warrior who has to go to war and does not want to go to war because he doesn't want to kill all of these people that he knows. How many of you know are familiar with the Bhagavad Gita? So this particular version is, um, is wonderful. I recommend it, and it's, it has commentaries. It's been translated, and the commentary is by Dr. Ravi Ravindra. It's a beautiful commentary, and if the Bhagavad Gita has escaped you, even though you may have tried to study it over the years, try this book, because his commentary is fantastic. So I'm going to read you a little something in here. Krishna has a lot to say about letting go of the past and getting into this, you know, this state of mind, which he calls buddhi. He's first going to instruct Arjuna in the yoga of buddhi, which is connecting to the deeper or higher intelligence that doesn't have anything to do with the mind that we're familiar with that's going on and on and on about all of its worries and its obsessions and its this and its concerns and its egoic attachments. And it's not that mind. It's a different mind. It's a much deeper and higher mind that knows, that has direct experience of those realms that are even beyond buddhi. So the yoga of buddhi. This is uh, Ravi Ravinda's commentary. A human being is compulsively driven by the past and accumulated knowledge and by all experiences and memories, in other words, by the ordinary self. 
All our behavior is influenced by these knots created in the past, and the really deep ones continue to influence us across the barriers of physical death and birth or rebirth. Free action would be action that is undertaken in response to the present situation, not in reaction to what happened to us yesterday. So he's talking a lot about the difference between reacting and responding. If we're reacting, it's a knee-jerk reaction, you know, it's coming out of some past story or some past, some identification that we have. If we respond, we actually have the space and the presence of mind in the moment to be able to respond to what is really happening in the moment, not what we think is happening, not what we believe we heard, which may have, for some whatever reasons, who knows why, maybe we're tired, we don't know, but for some reason, we something from our past is present for us, and we respond to what's happening in the present moment completely out of proportion or we don't we don't even we fail to even connect to what's actually happening in the moment we're we have somebody else's face and some other story on that person or on that situation we can't really see it for what it is but if we can access in the moment this higher quality of attention because buddhi is a sanskrit word it, and again it refers to this higher intelligence but it's like an integrated awareness that is native to us and we do taste it it's not like only only certain saints get to have this thing we've all got it we just have to learn to access it which means you know of course a lot of relaxing and a lot of inner work but let's hear what else he has to say one more thing he says which i think is very useful All spiritual development consists in moving from reaction to response. That's a pretty big statement. And interesting and worth considering, all spiritual development consists of moving from reaction, which is coming from the past, to response, which is happening now in the present moment. So I I really like this, another another, uh, point that he makes in here when he's talking about this cultivation of the yoga of buddhi, which is letting go and discovering what might be innate to us, deeper existing, deeper in us than the past and what we've known ourselves to be in the familiar. He says that when we actually access the insight of that space, of that that gift within us that is buddhi, that is our innate, integral, intelligent awareness in the moment. That when we access that, that we discover that the insight is naturally full of order. That we are attuned to the cosmic order. We are attuned to dharma in that moment. And this is part of why I love these Anasazi, like the fact that the Anasazi, how did they figure all of this out? How did they how did they come to to these this wisdom that they came to? Because they were connected to the cosmic order and they were connected to the cosmic order within themselves through this connection to Buddhi, this innate divine intelligence. So timing is everything. There's a time to sow, there is a time to reap. How does this beautiful, beautiful uh, teaching in the Bible go? Does anybody know that? 
Can anybody recite that or a little part of it? For everything, there's a time. It's from Ecclesiastes. Yes. For everything, there's a season. For everything, there's a season. A time to sow, a time to reap, a time to make love. (laughs) A time for war, a time for peace. A time for war, a time for peace. Exactly, which is what Krishna says to Arjuna. You have to fight because, of course, it's a fight of good and evil, you know. It's the bad guys and the good guys. It's always like that, whether it's Star Wars or the Bhagavad Gita. Or, you know, they're always killing demons sometimes. So the yoga of awareness. And the thing about order that I've discovered in my life, what's, what's true for me about it is that, you know, some people really like anarchy. And I, yeah, I'm all for revolution. I mean, I came of age in the 60s, and so I'm all for revolution. I have a revolutionary spirit that's still alive and well. And I also really appreciate order because I've, for myself, discovered over the years that there's <clears throat> beauty in order. There's a great deal of beauty in order. Anybody have a question or a comment? Thank you. Oh well, yes, I can say some things about that. I think that it is self-evident, but it but it certainly does deserve some comment because it's a strong word. So tyranny means that you can't do anything about it. It is it, it is a life and death situation. If you have a petty tyrant, you know, how many of you have read uh, the teachings of Don Juan Castaneda? He has a, gives a whole teaching in there, this Yaki shaman, Don Juan. He gives a whole teaching in his, in his book, the books by Carlos Castaneda, about the, va- the value of having a petty tyrant on the spiritual path. But the thing about a tyrant, when you are, when you are um, having to live under a tyranny, you have no space and no options. You have to do what they what it says. You're not just stuck there. You are you are like ground under the boot, the the heel of the boot of the tyrant, into the ground. You have you have no you can't you cannot you can't move. But what did what were you well, saying? imprisoned in a way? You're not in a in the in the prison, but you're imprisoned because you can't yes. do anything, say anything against it, make a change. Right, exactly. So prison is a really good it's a really good metaphor for it. Yeah, you're in prison. You're imprisoned. You can't make a change. You have to do that thing. And that's the tyranny of the past. If it's that deeply unconscious for us, then we really are the pr- a prisoner of the past. We truly are. And we do we know this. Yes, yes. Um I was thinking, you know, how is it that we get stuck because it's one thing to say over identify but to really be stuck in events or time periods in our past and then I think about trauma and um and the mechanism there is that we tend to repeat something even if it's in our mind but sometimes repeat recapitulate in our lives when we have a view that something is incomplete, like mission unaccomplished, or I failed, or the path not taken. 
and the mind, or I don't know what to say the mind, but an aspect of us wants the completion, wants the ending. Um, that's part of the human condition. So it just keeps going over and over. Yes. Let me try again. So then what's the antidote to that? How do we bring acceptance or peace to that really? Well, that acceptance and peace is, yes, that is that is the answer, but how do we get to that? And going back to the uh, one of the reasons I bring up humility is that, you know, I was saying it's not about feeling bad about ourselves or feeling worthless or, or any of those things or being insecure. Um, humility is really, to a great degree, knowing that we have limits and that we have limitations and that limitation is inherent to existence in space and time. It is what is. We do have limits. And so I understand very deeply what you say, and I'm touched. I'm happy that you brought it up. Because this, and particularly on the spiritual path, where we've placed ideals on ourselves, and we we wanted to achieve or accomplish something, and we did not. Maybe in a relationship, maybe it's a failed marriage. It has to do with our children. It has to do with our parents. It has to do with really important things in our lives, and we have a deep and profound sense of failure and incompleteness. I can relate to this because I I I uh, because I have lived for sixty eight years. <laughs> So, you know, it is it is part of life. At some point, we have to face that there are certain limitations that we have and that there are reasons why that they're there, why they are there. So this, uh, you know, development of humility, one thing of like humility, which makes a space for acceptance, to accept what is as it is. This is what happened. And oftentimes in our so-called failures, because we're so fixated on what we think we were supposed to accomplish in it, we can't even see that actually something, some other miracle happened or some other amazing, mysterious thing happened that we, we haven't, we haven't um, tasted the fruits of that yet. It's still in process. And I, I know for myself on the spiritual path that I that I um, I have come to understand more deeply that some of my work will not show up in this life because I'm a I'm a I, I'm not I wouldn't even say I'm a believer because it's it's not a, a belief for me like a, it's something much deeper than a belief that there are many lifetimes and there is evolution over. Um, over a period of time, <laughs> cosmic time. So uh, I think we'll we'll come back to that. But do you want to say some more about this? It's so important. You know, this word disillusionment. So a lot of these kinds of things that we're talking about, so I'm disillusioned. I believed in this thing. It disappointed me. I believed in this ideal, this situation, this person. Uh, I believed that I could do this thing, that I could accomplish this. It didn't happen. I'm disillusioned. I'm disappointed. I'm deeply hurt. Maybe I feel betrayed. And I feel betrayed by myself. The thing about disillusionment is that it means that we are going to be relieved of our illusions. Right? So it must be a good thing. But it does not feel good when it's happening. 
it hasn't felt so good for me when it was happening. It was only much later over time. <laughs> there's time again because there's this digestion that happens. There's a lot that we have to digest in our lives. And as we get older, it's more and more incumbent on us. It's more pressing and urgent for us to digest the experiences that we've had so that they have a chance to be alchemized into wisdom. So wisdom understands limitation, completely understands it, understands that it's necessary for us in this human life. Otherwise, if we had no limitation, how would we learn? How would we cultivate these sublime qualities of, for example, compassion if we don't have some limitation? Many people learn compassion for others through, through, through profound heartbreak and tremendous disappointment or just on the divine path of growing older in which the body is naturally going through its changes and we do lose function. We, we come up against our limitations again and again. We cannot do, I cannot do certain things. I can still do a lot. But I cannot do what I could do when I was 25 or 35. This is real. This is what is. So I either, you know, have the hum- enough humility, enough receptivity and flexibility in myself to go, okay, this is what is. I'm, I'm going to work with accepting this. And I may not be able to accept it like once and then it's accepted and it's done. I have to accept it many times over and over again. Yes, and we know the truth of this, that it's an ongoing work. It's an ongoing work for us, accepting what is. But it's in the acceptance that we find the freedom that we're looking for. And something new can emerge. So back to those those five things that you were thinking about or that you wrote down that you're identified with. Here's one of my identifications. I am a writer. Really? Is that who you are? I have written a few books in my life, and so I've spent a lot of time at a computer. I also love to play the piano. I sometimes contemplate what would happen if I can no longer write, because as I've gotten older and I've spent years and years and years and years at a word processor, I have problems with my back, I have carpal tunnel, I have, you know, so these are limitations that have come up for me, and they're also losses. I love to write for 12 hours, and, you know, I can, I, I, I enjoy that. I like to just lose myself in, in creative project, stop for food, you know, it's necessary, and then go back to work, but I can't do that anymore. That's not possible for me anymore. So sometimes I contemplate this just as a way of, of, of working with myself internally, like what would happen if I couldn't write at the computer at all anymore? Who would I be then? Who would I be? Who am I if I can't write? Who am I if I can't dance? I can't sing. I can't play the piano. Who am I if I can't be a mother and a grandmother? Precious roles, sacred roles, absolutely. It's all sacred. There's nothing wrong with these things that we do, that we identify with. They're sacred to us. Again, it's the crystallization and the grasping and the clinging and the like and the uh, tyranny, the tyranny of it. 
because we're so much bigger and life is going to put us through whatever it needs to put us through to break us out of those those confines sooner or later. So think about your five things. What would happen if you could no longer do the, the thing that you love to do that brings you joy? Who would you be? Who are you beyond that? Where is your freedom? Can you be free of that? And there's room for grief in there because that too has to be accepted. The whole process of it has to be accepted because we do grieve. We grieve our losses of even small things, very small things. We grieve all of those losses and that's natural. It's very natural. And it actually can be, the grief process can be a kind of alchemy that helps us very profoundly in the development of these sublime qualities that we're looking to develop in ourselves that the deity wants to see blossom in us. What if you lost your eyesight or hearing? I find I'm very sensitive to quality of life issues. Mm-hmm. And I probably would really suffer. Yeah. Well, yes. I, I, it would be a crisis. Absolutely. It would be a crisis. So, how to work with that? No, we never know. You, you, you probably will never have to deal with that. You know, some people, my friend, I have a friend who just returned from visiting her 91-year-old father. He's a spry. His wife died a number of years ago, and he has a new a companion, a very lovely person, and he does yoga, and he's like 91 years old, and he's doing great. And, and so some of us will have that without question. Others of us will not have that. We will have whatever comes to us. So it, it behooves us, if we're on the spiritual path and we're interested in finding out who we really are, who am I? What, what's my purpose here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Where am I going? A lot of that stuff implies time, past, present, future. It behooves us to begin to contemplate these questions and how would we work with it if a crisis comes in our lives. Another another um, teaching from Don Juan, the same Yaki shaman I was talking about earlier, is let death be your advisor. It's a very good advice. Very good advice. Spiritual experience. Let's talk about that for just a minute, a little bit more. I touched on that earlier, but I'll say a few more things about that. How many of you have had... Um, you don't have to say much about it, but uh, just think about it. If you've had experiences along the way in your life, you've had a big heart opening, let's say, or a kundalini experience, or some kind of a, a moment of communion with a divinity, or an experience in nature. Some of you, you're, you're raising your hand. Some, some, of, some of us, yes, have had this. And this is a wonderful thing. It's a gift. And I, I remember once years ago, I asked my spiritual teacher because I had been through a period of time when I had this um, um, very profound longing that, and heart opening that occurred for me. And then, and then it began to slowly fade. 
And I and I was really sad about it because, of course, I wanted to come back. It was so wonderful. And uh, I wanted to be like that forever. Divine madness, bring it on. I'm, you know, ready. And, uh, but it didn't stay. And, uh, and uh, like all things, it passed. All things passed. This is a true statement. All things passed. So I asked my teacher, Lee, I said, to him, you know, what happens to it? And, you know, was it, it's got, it seems to be going away. Maybe it's gone. And, and he said to me, with great compassion, he said, it, it never goes away. It just goes deeper into you and it becomes a part of you. And you don't even know what's going on anymore because it's not necessary. What's necessary is that we be functional here and now and be able to serve life. Even Ananda Ma, who was in Bliss a lot, she, she was serving everybody too, of course. You all know who Ananda Ma is. Or was. She's not here anymore in the physical. She's often many pictures of her in bliss and you know in divine communion, divine madness. So these experiences can become the defi- the defining almost another kind of tyranny, a sweet tyranny, a lovely tyranny, a seductive tyranny, but still it's another prison. Oh, back in the 80s, I had such and such happen to me. And, you know, that's who I am. Really? That's who you are? This is 2019. 40 years later, whatever. Something like that. I'd like to talk a little bit about taking risks. Because here's something that we can do that might be useful to us. If we want to accelerate a little bit the um, aliveness in ourselves or we want to bring ourselves to life in a way or we want to maybe just have some kind of a movement that might be uh, sort of pushing on the edges of our known reality or, or, or on our uh, prison that we're in of the past. Trying something radically new. So we don't want to just like again forge ahead and and just randomly try something new or do something um, that's dangerous to us because there is a natural biological instinct to protect our incarnation and so that's our survival instinct yes and that can we can get tied up in knots about that that's kind of part of our whole past. Um, complex of knots that we have having to do with survival instinct and what we went through as children. But there's a natural and innate uh, wisdom about protecting our organism that we want to keep intact. So we don't want to do stupid things. You know, we don't need to go try to climb Mount Everest when we're not a mountain climber. That's not who we are. We don't need to, to uh, jump out of an airplane and, and say, okay, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to jump out of an airplane, and I'm not going to open the parachute until the last minute. So, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating here to make a point. But so we don't, this may be, you can apply this in principle to lots of things. We don't want to do things like that. That's not the point of taking risks. The point of taking a risk is can we do something that will generate a substance in our lives, a ross, we might say a rasa, a, a nectar or a, or a taste, something new, some elixir, 
that we might need, some substance in our lives. We could do something that would just move things a little bit in a direction, will produce something in us. Just a little small change. Even if it's you decide you want to take tango lessons or something is you know, benign as that. That doesn't involve anybody else. There's no risk to anyone else. Nobody's going to get hurt. But what if you just going and dancing once a week with your partner, you can extrapolate and take this to wherever you want to take it. Something like that, where you take on learning something new or doing something different that could produce something in your body or in your, you know, in your, uh, the organism of who you are. They could be very sweet for you or very alive for you. What can you do that could just shake up your energy a little bit that doesn't threaten anybody else? I love the idea of this. I like it very much um, that we can produce a substance in ourselves. Maybe that... uh, Maybe that memoir that you've been thinking about writing, or you want to take up yoga. Why not? That's a great way to move the energy in the body and create a new substance, a new opening, a new aliveness for yourself. What's the most interesting thing to you, if anybody, of, of what, what we've been talking about, what we've been considering? You've been very kindly and gener- generously listening to me consider these things. What's been the most interesting thing for you? What has sparked you? What has kind of captured your attention for a moment? Anything? Yes. What I'm feeling is that I don't know anything about the readings or the spirituality passage you're talking about. I'm just new to all this. But I have lived for 76 years. Congratulations. But what what I'm feeling is that life does have teaching mm-hmm. and the know the fact that the response rather than the act and a lot of things that you said i go uh-huh i know that mm-hmm. and so i'm all I, it's a pro of something the understanding and i think that what i have learned too is often the pain of life creates an opportunity not only for it's an opportunity for understanding, but also for compassion. Yes. To to look in others' eyes and see where they're coming from. And I guess that's kind of what I heard from you when I processed and said, I hope I know that. But I don't know the teachings. I haven't done the readings. But I think life does teach us a lot of lessons if we're paying attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Life is the greatest teacher. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I just want to say something when we talk about reacting versus responding um i think uh i'm 49 <laughs> but for me um i used to be a very reactive person and i've learned through age that uh pausing in a situation has allowed me to see the essence of the people that are in front of me Mm-hmm. creating the situation and sort of taking um, not just a physical breath, but it used to be a physical breath for me where I would just, but now it's just a con- concept, but um, gave me time and space 
to respond in a way that was true for me and didn't ruin who I was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the most precious thing over time that I've been able to give voice to is being able to see the essence of the people. In other words, when it's somebody who's yelling or upset or angry, that's, I don't really see that as really being them. I, I actually have the ability, um, which I think is a gift, for just a millisecond to see that that's um, a human being who also is reacting from their own life experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying I'm a master at this, but, but it certainly has helped me in my profession and, and personal relationships. But, so it's just interesting to take time and space and not react. And, and anyways, I just wanted to share that. Yeah, so important. So important. Yes, the slowing down is so important. Mm-hmm. We really have to consider what is important to me in this life. We really have to get clear about what our priorities are and what our aim is, what our purpose is, and slow down and make space for that. Make it the priority. And I love what you say. It's it's absolutely true, and it's and it's it's great. Uh, it's great advice that really comes from your experience. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Anybody else? Anything you'd like to share with everyone? I know you all have lots of wisdom. I see it in everyone's face. I think one, one thing that struck me is because I've been in cycles of creation and destruction most of my life (laughs) and now I'm probably on preservation and I didn't think about it that way Mm -hmm. because things just are not manifesting as Mm -hmm. I need them to in a sense just for survival or Mm -hmm. and so I'm just trying to figure it out because I've always had set my set my thoughts and directed my energies and things manifested and and circumstances would destroy that and I'd have to start over but and now it's just like okay I'm, I don't have any particular goals and I I don't you know I know what my purpose has been and, and still is but it's you know how to how to put that into practice been a challenge for me for a year. So mm-hmm. I found during, uh, thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, it brings to mind for me that times when I felt that things weren't moving, like in the creation destruction, the way I wanted them to. And I was in these, a long cycle of what seemed like it's like a long Valley and you don't know when you're going to get to climb the mountain again. And, uh, um, that what was what was required of me um, in a particular way during that time was that I go within. It was really, for me at that time, I don't know for you, but, you know, maybe useful to share. For me, it was the call within. I just had to go deeper and deeper and deeper into myself. 
and find what was there and what was going on for me and deal with these some of the things that we've been talking about, disappointment, the the frustration, the feelings of, um, well, certainly feelings of loss and facing the limitations of all of that. Uh, you were going to say something? I'll just imagine in, the, in that long valley, the word patience would be mm-hmm. a big word for me, a kind of new appreciation for the word interminable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, because when you're in that, it seems like it's going to last forever, and that it's just endless. Really? 40 years in the desert? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Patience, that's another one of those great virtues, isn't it? And timing is everything, and it's also the acceptance, acceptance of what it is now. I'm in the valley. I'm in the endless valleys. Maybe it seems like Death Valley. Have you ever driven through Death Valley? <laughs> well, I think it gives us time to to be consistent with our practices too. You know, if our practices mm-hmm. prove to manifest one way, and then we've had a cycle of it, even more so, you have to be even more consistent in the preservation period, even if it doesn't. Um, prove fruit, fruitful like it did before. You know that it works, so you have to keep consistent with the practices. Yes, and there's another there's another quality that can come out of this long time of waiting and accepting, um, and that is faith. Mm-hmm. Faith so precious. And we don't get faith like this. I mean, some maybe some of us, it's just bestowed upon us. We just have, naturally have faith. But my guess would be that we already developed that somewhere else along the way in some other iteration of our being somewhere, somehow. Because this is a pre- this is really pearl of, of great price, faith. So it reminds me of how, um, what we're talking about reminds me of how life is this labyrinthine experience is this long labyrinth and there are labyrinths within the labyrinth and and it's not just one labyrinth it's many of them but then there's the whole labyrinth of our lives and how do we get through it in the traditions they often call it crossing the ocean of samsara you know how are we going to get from paradise back to paradise again um so I love this. Uh, I have a I have a penchant for the Greek myth, for all myths. I love myths and mythology. And um, there's a, a Greek myth. Many of you know it, I'm sure. There's a king. His name is King Minos, and he has a beautiful daughter. Her name is Ariadne. And they have on their island, which is one of the Greek islands way back, you know, a few thousand years ago, they have this creature called a minotaur. And everybody's afraid of him. And the Minotaur lives in the in the middle of the labyrinth, in the heart of the labyrinth. And they have this Minotaur is so fearsome and so wrathful and so demonic that they have to sacrifice someone to him every year to keep him peaceful. And so one day, this great hero from Athens appears, and his name is Theseus. And um, Theseus comes and 
And he says, oh, uh, King Menos and, you know, the court. And he's, he's, being, he's being wined and dined by the court. He says, King Menos, you know, what can I do to serve you? What can I do while I'm here? And Menos says, oh, well, <laughs> you're a hero. Well, maybe you can help us out with this very big problem that we have. We've got this minotaur that lives in, at the heart of the labyrinth here on, on, our, on our island. And uh, he's, been, he's been terrorizing us. He's a tyrant. He's been terrorizing us for ever, and nobody can get rid of him. Nobody can find their way to the heart of a labyrinth to even kill him to begin with. So uh, maybe you can help us out with that. And so Theseus says, oh, yes, I'm a great hero. I can definitely do that, and I will kill the Minotaur for you. But Ariadne, in the meantime, has fallen in love with the beautiful Greek hero, and she, uh, she knows that he's going to have some problems because she knows about this Minotaur, and she's seen a lot of heroes come and go and die in their effort to get to the heart of the labyrinth. And so she goes to him the night before he's going to enter the labyrinth to kill the Minotaur, and she says, I know the secret to how to get to the heart of the labyrinth. She said, the problem is everybody can get into the labyrinth. Everybody, all the heroes go into the labyrinth, but the problem is nobody can get back out. She says, so I know the secret. And she says, I'll tell you the secret if you promise, since I've fallen in love with you, because since you're this beautiful Greek hero, if you'll marry me when you come back. And so he says, well, okay, you're not bad. I'll, I'll take that deal. So he does. So she says, here's what you do. Take this ball of silken twine. And as you, when you enter the labyrinth, you unwind it, and you unwind it all the way in to the heart of the labyrinth. And then after you've killed the minotaur, you just, and you, you tie it to your whatever, you know, secure it in some way. And then you follow that twine back out, and that's how you'll know how to get back out. And so he says, okay, I'll do that. And he does. And he un, he, he goes in, he, he un, unwinds the, unspools the, the silk thread all the way into the heart of the labyrinth. He gets to the heart of the labyrinth. He kills the minotaur. And sure enough, he finds the silk thread and he follows it back out. And of course, there's a huge feast and a big celebration. And um, he he's now going to leave with Ariadne, which he does. So that's that part of that myth, which is very interesting in and of itself. I mean, come, I'll come back to that in a minute. But just to complete the myth, so what happens next is that uh, Ariadne and Theseus leave on his boat, and they go off sailing, and they're together, and they're going sailing back to Athens. He's like the king. He's the son of the king of Athens, and he's going back to Athens. He's a big hero. And they get to this island. It's called Naxos, and they, they, um, they go to shore there. And um, they fall asleep on the island. And when Ariadne wakes up, Theseus is gone. And she doesn't know where he is or why he's left her there. But she's abandoned on the island. So, of course, first of all, she starts grieving and crying. And, you know, how could you do this to me? And you betrayed me. And this is the worst thing that could have ever happened. You promised to marry me. So on and so forth. And she cries and she cries and she cries until she just exhausts herself on the on the shore of the ocean with the waves coming in. And she empties herself out completely until she gets to the very bottom of her grief, to the place where she just accepts, like, okay, this is what I have. 
deserted on a desert island, alone on a desert island. And the very moment that she accepts her situation, there's a star up in the heavens, of course, that gets very bright and shiny and radiant and begins to descend to her. And sure enough, it's one of the lords of the sky, Dionysus. And he says, ah, you've done so well. I'm going to marry you and take you up to my realm where, you know, everything's going to be great. And so he does. And she becomes the queen of Dionysus. That's the basic myth. But let's go back to the labyrinth, because the thing that interests me, besides, of course, I mean, we could, it's a different talk. If we're going to talk about Ariadne being, um, you know, abandoned on the island and all that, it's a little different meta- part of the metaphor, part of the symbolism. But there's something about this idea of getting through the labyrinth with the twine that I find very interesting for us to ask ourselves of like, what is the twine? How am I going to get to the heart of the labyrinth and back out again in my life? Now, all of these great stories, these myths, they're all wisdom teachings and they have something for us that they want to tell us about how the soul works, how the soul grows, how it goes through death and birth creation and destruction, how it goes through long periods of development and preservation and maintenance, just maintaining day after day after day and waiting and having faith that Dionysus is going to come because we might feel abandoned on the desert island, you know, might feel like our hero has left us. The thing about a myth is that every part of the myth is me, it's you. So you are Ariadne, you know, you are the twine, you are the one who has the wisdom, you are the, you are the minotaur. Your past may be your minotaur tyrant that's at the heart of the labyrinth, like controlling things for you. And you are also the hero. Sorry? You are also the hero. You are also the hero. You will save yourself. You will save yourself. And then you'll abandon yourself. Yes. Two. It's yes. It's all a part of us. So, how did these? How did these Greeks and and Hindus and all the tribal, all these wonderful mythologies? They're just fantastic. I think that um, ending on the note of cultivating faith in the midst of all of this is is so important for us, and uh, the note of faith and of acceptance. And to recognize that limitation is actually our teacher, that it's teaching us, and and that our purpose is to please deity, which is none other than our very selves. <laughs>